Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I am here today with a special guest who's a repeat guest on the show. It is Mr. Joe Galati, the Greenkeeper and host of the Talking Greenkeeper podcast. Welcome back to the ATC Double Cut, Joe. Oh, Micah, thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. And let me guess what we're going to be talking about. Bombs? Bombs yeah, on bomb, the blog? Bombs on the blog because there are plenty of them. And I, um, yeah, I, I think when we talk about it, you'll see that some of these are really quite interesting. So don't uh, tune out right now thinking that we're talking about things that aren't worth reading or aren't worth looking at. I think some of these are quite quite good. We're going to talk about the ones, the 10 blog posts. I, I don't know if we'll get to all 10 of them, but from 2020, from calendar year 2020. And that was kind of a big year for the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it, it's easy to to understand why some of those might not have gotten seen the first time because people were preoccupied and busy with other matters. And, and there was a lot going on. And I skimmed through that list before we talked about it. Some of these are amazing. And and I'd even forgotten about writing a couple of them. They're pretty, pretty good. So I, I think it'll be fun. A, a few stood out to me. Uh, the so, the soil sampling one, which I, I thought was very important. How many actual samples to take off of a green? Mm -hmm. Super huge. Uh, number the one that tied for tenth. I can't yeah. believe that was one of the least read ones. The one where you talked about going to golf in Thailand and playing nine holes and being able to rent an ATV. Yeah, that's just, that's a four-wheeler. Awesome. Yeah, more yeah, don't you think more, do I, wouldn't you love it if people could rent ATVs at at your facility? I think it would be great, particularly mine because it's a nine-hole course, similar to the one No, yours the one you went to was 18 holes. No, it was nine. It's nine. It's nine. Nine, but you can play 18, you can go around twice. Right. But, yeah, I think it would be really cool if people could take an ATV out on the Monchanic course because I think that's what the Monchanic course is all about. The course that I manage, DuPont Country Club, it's this nine-hole executive course, two par fours, uh, seven par threes, par 29. And it's this space that's an introduction to the game for a lot of the members there. And... I feel like it needs to loosen up. I feel like there should be this fun vibe associated with, with Monchanan. Sort of like when when we were kids and playing a pickup touch football game on the street and we'd throw our t shirts down and, and that would be that would be the touchdown, right? Or yeah, and an ATV would just add to that charm. And it would add to the uh, acoustical ambience also. Because you could just imagine, like, you know, somebody, you know, blast a big drive. If it's par 29, you have to have some a couple holes that are not par threes. So somebody blasts a big drive and, you know, just fire up the, you know, the, get that engine roaring. Yeah, I put up on yeah, the screen the for everybody watching this. Did you know that you can get the ATC blog by email? Well, for those watching it, I've, I'm trying a new... Uh, feature for the first time I've put a QR code up on the screen and you can scan that QR code and you can uh, then go directly to the sign up page to 
enter your email address and get the ATC blog sent to you by email. So you'd be subscribing to an email that, if I'm not mistaken, Joe, you get this email, don't you? Every day. Every well, day I'm getting a blog. Mostly every day I'm getting a, getting a blog post from you or something that you're doing. Yeah. Well, for the uh, past... You- for the past few days, but yes, yeah, you've been busy. I, I've been busy, but you won't get an email from me every day. If you want that, I'm sorry, I I can't uh, write that much. I would say on average, this comes out uh, on an average year. It's going to be from fifty to a hundred times. So, I rarely have had more than a hundred new blog posts, and I rarely have had less than fifty. So generally, it's going to be in the 60 or 70 or 80 range. Um, And on the same day that the blog is posted, you get an email with the full text of the blog. So then you can see if it's something that you're interested in, like maybe I'll write about divot recovery, and maybe you're interested in that, then you can read it. And maybe I'll write about something you're not interested in, like uh, one of the recent posts was about manganese. Maybe you're not interested in manganese. Well, then you don't have to read it. So uh, I think for some people, they like getting that email. There's more than 600 subscribers right now. And for those listening to it, I'll put a direct link to it in the show notes. And then if you're watching this, you can scan the QR code. I'm interested to see if anybody can find that useful. QR codes are pretty awesome. I like a QR code. They make life easy. And yeah, it's it really is a way to sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for thwart procrastination because it's right there in front of you. You can just like hit it right there where if it's in the show notes, you might be like, okay, it's I'll just, I'm listening to this. I'll do it later. But with the Mm -hmm. QR code right there, all you need to do is bust out your phone and your yeah. the camera on your phone and bust it out and it goes right to your sign up page for the website. So great idea. I well, should figure out how to implement this on my end. True, Micah. Yeah, yeah. Although for a podcast, I'm I'm not sure how you put a, a QR code <laughs> in a podcast. But I mean, I could put it on the in the show notes, right? Yeah, yeah. You could put a QR code in the show notes. Or just uh, yeah, there there would be various ways that you could make use of QR codes. I, yeah, or I maybe w- yeah. I was gonna say maybe on my tweets, I just tweet a QR code, mm-hmm. and it just sends you to, it sends you to the the uh, the my my podcast page or whatever. You know, oh, that's a pretty dumb idea. Probably won't do that. Well, that's certainly something that could be done. Um, uh, Chris Tridabaugh had the idea that at the final slide of a presentation, and he was the superintendent resident, superintendent in residence at the University of Guelph earlier this year, and he used a QR code to share some information of uh, blog posts and the slides and everything for people to see those and share. I thought that was a pretty good idea because I often... I always on my first slide and my last slide I'll put asianturfgrass.com I'll put a put a link to that. And that that's my website. But not so many people go to visit, but I thought maybe if I put a QR code then people will find it a little bit easier to directly go and, you know, see the slides, see whatever information I'm sharing. No, it's a great idea. And of course Chris Trinabach came up with that guy. Of course, right? Yeah, he he He's an idea man. 
He really is. He really is. All right. Well, Joe, let's. Uh, I'm going to take down that QR code so we have a full, pretty screen to look at, and I'm going to bring up this blog uh, post. Uh, Ten posts no one read in 2020. They were too sick with COVID, maybe. Yeah, it, it was. It was a crazy year. It was. Um, so uh, I start off just kind of talking about. Let's see, what did I say? Uh, th- yeah, the views are also affected by the time I published the post or because of what was going on in the world at the time. And, and I mentioned that if you miss any of these the first time around, I'm giving them another chance here. I'll put a direct link to this post, the post of the 10 posts or the bombs, the ones that no one read in 2020. I'll put a direct link to this in the show notes so you can check them out. And here's the list. There's a there's a top 10, and I did it in reverse order. So these are the ones that had the fewest views. And um, yeah, I, I don't know that we need to talk about all of them, Joe. Did you, but you apparently checked these out when I told you what our specific topic was going to be. Yeah, I did. I asked you to send me a link because going back in my Rolodex of my brain three years ago, hey, not too good there. So Mm -hmm. I said, Micah, send me the link and I'll check it out. And as I scrolled the list, the Rolodex was was reminded of blogs Mm -hmm. that I did read then. And there were a few that stuck out. But why don't you go ahead and this is your show. I don't want to I don't want to. Yeah. So talk to me about what you want to yeah bring up the ones you want to talk about let me pick the ones that i would like to talk about today and that i think kind of stood the test of time um uh, of it being something that i wrote about three years ago that i think is now still something that might be worth reading today and let's start off with the kind that i like uh and i think you like but they are predictable it's predictable that they don't get very many views. And this is a turf tourism type of post. It's tied for 10th to walk or to ride a difficult decision. And this one shows a photo. Can you see that photo of the all-terrain vehicle for rent with a phone number? There's a couple of them set up. Um, There's a couple chickens. This is, this is a uh, country golf course. But that makes a wonderful type of vehicle to get around the golf course. It looks fun. I, <laughs> I mean, it looks like a good time. Yeah. The chicken. I didn't notice the chickens until you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, that just there's, adds to the the realm of this. Go- it just adds to the flavor of the golf course. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Yeah. So, so. You know, I, I like to write about interesting things that I see with golf courses or other turf grass sites around the world, and I prefer walking. In fact, your blog post, the original, I, I mean, sorry, your blog, before you had the podcast, your blog was called The Walking Greenkeeper, and I know yes. you enjoy walking also. And I wrote that when I play golf, I much prefer to walk. So the choice between walking and riding, it's usually an easy one for me because I'm just like, yeah, I want to walk. But when you see that you have the chance to take a four-wheeler, an all-terrain vehicle on the golf course, possibly into and out of some bunkers, I mean, 
that 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 makes me think maybe I want to rent one of these. And it was quite cheap. It's cheaper than a golf cart in the United States, I think. Um, they were charging 250 baht, which is about, uh, oh, seven dollars, seven US dollars for nine holes. And 400 baht, which is about $12 for an 18-hole rental. And I suppose it typically costs more than that to rent and rent a golf cart in the United States. Yeah, a, a lot more. I, I think a golf cart cart in the United States is twenty it, twenty bucks, twenty to thirty dollars to rent a golf cart in the United States, and they're not fun. Not I, I mean, what's cool about a golf cart? Nothing. Yeah. You're constantly. What I find annoying about a golf cart is you're con- you're constantly looking for your stuff, right? There, there's no just. You put your tees here, your extra balls there, your wallets there, your phone's somewhere, and you're just constantly always looking for stuff while you're playing golf with, on a golf cart. Where if you're walking, it's just all on you, right? Everything's on you or in your bag. There's yeah, well, really I'm, only a couple places to look. Well, I'm afraid that taking a, a four-wheeler, you might be looking for stuff a couple holes back when it bounced out of your pocket or you know but at least you'd have fun right (laughs) at least you'd have fun doing it yeah i mean popping wheelies taking jumps out of bunkers jumps off of tees i mean the pace of play would probably be insane yeah Mm -hmm. the four-wheeler seems like a fun and it reminds me so del castle i I for those that listen to the podcast my podcast, Mike, is a talking mm-hmm. greenkeeper. They know that the course I grew up was called Del Castle. And I remember the Rangers used to tool around on three wheelers. Remember the Honda yeah. three wheelers back mm-hmm. in the day, back yeah. in the 80s? Those are yeah, dangerous. They were like, yeah, they were dangerous, but they would tool around. The Rangers would rip around on these three wheelers, and some of the maintenance crew would rip around on these three wheelers as well. And we would always look at these dudes ripping around on three wheelers thinking, oh, my gosh, that looks so much fun. Mm-hmm. And then you add the four wheelers. And, yeah, I mean, it seems so much fun and so interesting. But you decided to walk anyway. And yeah, why did I you did. decide to walk that day? Well, it was a weekend. I wasn't in a hurry. And I figured I could come back. And plus, I, I do enjoy walking. So, yeah, uh, I think I had my hickory clubs in that round. Um, so, Anyway, it's it's a course with rustic fairways, decent grass on the greens, um, and some nice mountains in the background, some homemade flags. Uh, it's just yeah, it's a it's a cool golf course, and the greens are Manila grass, um, and the greens get irrigated. So the greens, so Manila grass is zoysia matrella, and that is a grass that grows really well in warm places like Thailand but it requires irrigation to persist. And I showed pictures of the fairway and the fairway doesn't really have much manila grass on it because the fairways are on a sandy type of soil that doesn't hold much moisture. And manila grass doesn't persist in those kind of conditions where it's not irrigated, but it does persist in on the greens where it does get irrigation. So yeah, it's uh, it, it was a fun course to play. Now, that course, Micah, do you remember, do you know how many people are on their maintenance staff, or can you uh, take a guess? Uh, maybe one, maybe maybe one or two or three. Okay. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a course on a government uh, compound that's used. I believe it's for uh, disaster relief type of training. It's like a, yeah. a camp, I think, where people from government agencies, and I'm not sure which ones, um, do would do planning or training for responding to disasters. That that's my understanding of it. And there is a golf course on it that that one can go play. And I love golf courses like this. I, I, for example, today. Uh, Stevie had a soccer tournament in Lancaster, right outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, uh, where Polistic, Christian Polistic, it was the the club that he grew up playing for, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Classics, and r- beautiful uh, tall fescue bluegrass fields. They were awesome. And right around the corner is a sod farm. I can't remember the name of the spot, sod farm, but. The sod farm also had an 18-hole pitch and putt. And I almost had, yeah, and it reminded me of this. And it just was, it looked really just random. Let's let's have, let's cut some tees and and cut some greens and just have people come down. And the sticks were maybe five to six feet tall with, with homemade flags. And I almost convinced Rory. I said, Rory, my lovely wife, Rory. I said, Rory, we may need to go have an emergency nine. I may need to go check this place out. But unfortunately, it's raining. And she was down, but it was just raining. And because we had some time in between games. But it reminded me of this place. And as I was as I knew that I was going to be talking with you about about this blog post, it just seemed coincidental that i we rode by this place today that you know not nearly as beautiful as the landscape here Mannheim, pennsylvania not the picture of beauty beautiful in its own right but yeah it kind of reminded me of that mm-hmm. well i i love those kind of courses and i like to write about them and i call that turf tourism when i see something that's particularly scenic or uh, particularly interesting and, um, yeah, I, I think people come to my website, to AsianTurfGrass.com. They want to find solutions to problems. Uh, and they would tend to be looking for turfgrass-related technical information and not so much about travel blogging. And when I'm sharing pictures of post-round meals and... Uh, that looks insane. Yeah, you probably don't get this type of squid and crab and uh noodles with shrimp and some type of uh shellfish a clam or something you probably don't get that type of post-round meal in Mannheim, pennsylvania no probably some pizza at gargano's washed down with a mountain dew that's about the the (laughs) best you're gonna get do you get do you get see fresh seafood like this with a variety of of uh variety of seafood like this down at the delaware shore there are yes there's this place gosh it's in it's in fenwick island delaware and i'm trying to think of the name of it it's it's really cool and it's this just this shack and you go into it and it's you go in there and order and you take a seat and they bring it out to you and it's fresh fish daily and it's yeah you can get 
whatever is in season at that time, whether it be sea bass or, or rockfish or tuna. And you, there are these really wonderful fresh fish option down at either the Delaware beaches or Ocean City, Maryland. Yeah, we do have our opportunities to get some. Um, oysters are really good here. Uh, you can get really fresh oysters. I don't know what the oyster scene is like in Thailand, but the oyster scene here is yeah, insane. That's, oh, that's good. The oyster yeah, we scene can get in, fresh. Yeah, yeah. The oyster scene in Thailand is is a bit dodgy. Uh, I prefer oysters that grow in cold water. You know, yeah. oyster, oysters from France or from Washington or from uh, northern parts of Japan, I, I think, are quite tasty. Um, the ones in Thailand are not too good. Are huge. They're, you know, they're the size of they're the size of a like a quarter pound a, hamburger. Well, they're like <laughs> the size of a cell phone or something. And I'm just like, man, you know, you have to take too many bites out of it to eat it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want to, you know, that's what you yeah. want to do with an oyster and kind of see it. Yeah, it needs to be bite size. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. If if you're interested in pretty pictures of and you want to see uh, a four wheeler that you probably don't want on your golf course, <laughs> check out that post. <laughs> um, I know they should. I should introduce that to man. Tomorrow we have to go back to Mannheim, and I'm uh -huh. going to suggest that they allow four wheelers. But there are these. Yeah, there's these cool opportunities for all these different. So, what was uh Laird Hamilton? Didn't he have the golf board? Did you ever see that? I. Yeah, I remember seeing videos of that. Yeah, it looked fun. Mm -hmm. Didn't really catch on, though. No. Well, yeah. there's, yeah. Yeah, I don't think four-wheelers will catch on, but it's cool you can do that at this golf course. And I, yeah. I've i been back there subsequently. I, uh, was, I, was, I was back to that golf course in, um, oh, early 2022. And people were bringing up their own my uh, motorcycles, and with a sidecar, and the sidecar had like a a constructed uh, golf club holder. So your driver goes here, three wood goes here, irons go here, putter goes here, and they were just bringing their own motorcycles with a sidecar uh, onto the course. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like you just so instead of bringing your own golf cart to the course which i know some some clubs allow that this golf course was allowing so people didn't have to rent a four-wheeler they could just bring their own motorcycle with a sidecar which is pretty sweet i love it yeah i love it i mean most people put their significant other in a sidecar or their best buddy mm -hmm. i'm gonna put my golf clubs in them <laughs> all right um all right the um the next one that I want to discuss, we'll skip one about the Biga National Regional Conference. That was just a seminar announcement and a, and a movie announcement, but there wasn't a trailer. Let's jump to number eight, which is turfgrass soil sampling. And let's see. I'm surprised this one made the list. Well, I remember reading this one and being blown away by it well th but see this is part this was part five of a seven part series and i think the other parts did make it so it could have been the time of day when this one was shared or whatever 
And, you know, maybe, Joe, maybe my other blog posts are just so good and so popular that they're all, maybe they're all just amazing, but some of them uh, just have to, you know, just by the wonders of mathematics, some of them have to be in the bottom 10% or, you know, the, the bottom 10, right? Yeah, I, I see. I, I know. And as someone who looks at their stats, I look at the stats of my podcast and ones that I think that should do really well mm-hmm. don't do so well. And yeah, I think that that could be an excla- explanation. Uh, just the mathematical variances, the variances, right? Just yeah. could happen. So yeah, just as excellent as your blog is, I feel that the podcast that I produce is pretty excellent. It's mm-hmm. gotten excellent. It hasn't always been excellent, but it's gotten pretty excellent. And uh, yeah, you, sometimes you just don't get the numbers that you think you, you kind of like that emoji, the you know that one, Micah. You know that emoji, the um, yeah, I, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, let's get into this one. Well, there's a, there's a meme with. Uh, a Mark Wahlberg stats meme and they and and there's a lot of them and there's one that a, a lot of the any scientists that are listening to this might have seen um and it, it's to do with statistics and it's like stats Wahlberg or something and there's one that's like you know I can hang out with the average but I I want to party with the outliers and um you know, out, so outliers means it's really low or really high compared to the average, and that's what we're looking at here. So we're yeah. we're we're partying with the outliers, and this this one is good. This one is actually practical. So let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did. I, uh, side note, though, I think did Travis Shaddox tweet that meme? Um, he might have tweeted it. Um, yeah, that's he's an outlier. Yeah, well, there's not many people as interested in turfgrass nutrition as Travis. So he was a guest on your show um, he was, a couple yeah. months ago, and I enjoyed listening to that. And awesome. I, I don't know how that went for your stats. I don't know that you need to share how every particular episode went. But uh, yeah, you you get a lot of viewers, I, or sorry, listeners. So I'm, I'm impressed that you can uh, have the show enjoyed by so many people around the world that's that's Thank awesome I, well i appreciate it i i appreciate that and uh very fortunate working hard at it but go ahead let's let's get back to this sorry i sidebar go ahead so, let's talk so, about turf grass sampling so turf grass soil sampling i recommend especially for sand-based root zones that you base your fertilizer program or your fertilizer application rates to some extent off of soil test results because if your soil already has enough then you don't need to add these elements as fertilizer and the only way to be sure that you have enough and that you're not just just like one part per million uh high enough but you're going to fall off a cliff in august um if you don't have enough the only way to know kind of how close you are to falling off the cliff, and it's interesting that I have cliffs in Okinawa uh, from, from this golf course, uh, as, as the image shown here, um, the, the only way to really be sure about that is to do a soil test. Now, you can interpret soil tests wrong, or you can interpret soil tests in a more effective way. And I, 
I just kind of assume that everybody that's doing this is going to try to do it in a, in an in a, in an effective way. So, um, an effective way might be like using MLSN to interpret your soil test results. But before you even do the testing at the lab, and before you do this interpretation, you have to collect a sample. And I've been interested in this. And in early 2022, I wrote this post in February. I was quite interested in this. And I wrote a series of blog posts about it and then combined it into one single document because it turns out that the standard recommendation for sampling is to collect 12, a minimum of 12 subsamples per area. There was one research article, I think from Virginia Tech, and that was uh, by Donahue, that suggested you collect 20 subsamples or yeah, 20 subsamples and combine them into one sample. And they did that on a big lawn that was the size of four typical putting greens. I typically have been doing five subsamples per area. So per area, I mean, if, if I sample the seventh green, I would take five subsamples from the seventh green. That That's what I typically would have done. But the standard is to do 12 or more from one area. Do you collect your own soil samples? And if so, how many subsamples do you typically collect? I have done it. And I remember doing it at Newark Country Club, and it was that grab twelve from each one, right? So mm-hmm. if I was, if I was doing actually a fairway more, it would probably be like fifteen to twenty, right? It's backbreaking and work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and, and hey, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sell out the person who had me collect the samples and and interpret the data but as i was going out to doing it as i was going out and doing it i was thinking to myself wow this is a lot of work for me right yeah it's it's a lot of but i mean but i'm sorry micah so but yeah and then on greens it was that it was get 12 to 15 you know get 12 get around 12 to 15 Mm -hmm. and uh but John Emerson from the University of Delaware, their extensions uh, office came out and did sampling for us this year at, in, at the end of 22, at the end of the 22 season. And we did the five. We did five. We did exactly how you recommend it. We did. We took five from each green. Well, I, I'm not necessarily recommending five today, um, but that's how I had been doing it. That and okay, but um, I I wondered what other people do because I knew that I was kind of breaking the rules by doing five, um, and realizing that the recommendation was to take 12. And I wondered what other people do, so so I did a Twitter poll in early 2020, in early 2020, and the question was when collecting samples for soil nutrient analysis on golf course putting greens. How many subsamples do you collect to make a single composite sample for one putting green? And the results were from one to five subsamples. That was 12% of the respondents. From six to 10 subsamples, that was 45% of the respondents. And taking 11 or more, which is closer to what the standard recommendation is, that was 43%. So I realized there were only about 10% of the people doing it like I was doing it. And about 
and then then it was pretty much evenly divided. People that are still kind of breaking the recommendation, but doing more than I was, that was about 45%. And then the people following the standard recommendation, that was also about 45%. So it was interesting for me to see what people were actually doing, because uh, collecting a accurate sample that's going to be representative of your area is kind of important. So how long were you doing the five? What were you doing before you did the five? Mm. How many samples would you take? Uh, I've the recommended twelve. Uh, well, when I was a graduate student and I was sampling uh, for my research, I was doing way more intensively than that be- because basically the twelve is based on on an area, right? So it's assumed. Yeah that your area is sort of assumed to be about the size of a lawn or about the size of a putting green or, or a section of fairway or something. And so they say 12 should make a composite sample. I'm, I'm not sure where that number came from, but it's it was recommended by Penn State, by Rutgers, I think by Michigan State. Um, you generally see that number of 12. Sometimes they say 15 or, or 12 to 15. And then they say if you're doing a big area like a fairway, you may need to do more. And then there's one research article that suggests 20 be collected from an area the size of four putting greens, which which if you break that down into a single putting green size, you it you could say make an argument that maybe five would be enough for for a typical size putting green. Um it and so anyway, when I was a graduate student, I had these small plots that I was doing potassium research on, and I was taking 12 or 15 samples from each individual plot. Uh, but the purpose of that was not so much for sampling accuracy as it was to get a lot of material to work with, because I was doing the testing uh, in, with so many different methods. So I, I needed a big sample to work with. And... The reason for taking the reason why it's recommended to take so many samples is to get an average across the area. That's that's why there's a recommendation for 12 or more. So that you'll have some areas that might be low in phosphorus, some areas that might be higher in phosphorus, and by taking 12 samples, if you take 12 samples, then you might have um a uh, average across the low and the high areas. But I, I so the reason why I'm, I'm not recommending that anymore and what I recommend to people who are brave enough to try it is to just take a single sample. Wow. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going there. And the reason why I recommend taking a single sample is because now if we sample multiple greens instead of instead of hiding the lows and the highs by by getting an average of each area we can party with the outliers we can now find what our lowest is and what our highest is and it's not smoothed out by the average and i would think that for professional turf grass management we want to know what our highs and lows are and when you do composite sampling it's guaranteed that you're throwing away that information because there's no way when you when you mix a high and a low soil sample together and then that gets tested you've you missed what the low was and you missed what the high was 
it makes sense, particularly since throughout my entire life I've partied with the outliers. I, yeah. I mean, in, 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 real, li- in real life, in real life, mean? oh, in real life, mm-hmm. always partying with the outliers. So, uh, yeah, I'm down with partying with the outliers. So, I like this idea of collecting one sa- soil sample, if not just for the simple fact that it's partying with the outliers. And just and please you, so, invite me to that party. So, I've done some fall. I've done some some research about this, and and I wouldn't write about it on my blog if I hadn't researched it and. Uh, and been somewhat comfortable that this would work. Um, so I've done this where I've taken five subsamples per area and one sample per area. And I've done this myself and I've also asked other people to do it. So we have a, a nice data set from around the world uh, comparing the results. And what I found when I was doing my part of that data collection project was, oh my God, goodness, this is so tedious and takes so much time to do those five subsamples. And I couldn't imagine the people that are out there taking 12, 15, 20. One person responded on Twitter when I did that poll and said that they typically are doing from 20 to 30 per green. And I was like, oh my goodness. It's so much work. Now, uh, that's going to be one inch. Uh, sorry, I'm going to go. Uh, you know, American system me- measuring system here, but with like a one inch diameter soil probe. Yeah, but Do, I think the standard like... standard in turf is is usually three quarters of an inch. So yeah, which most... is a big hole, dude. Yeah, maybe Imagine they're using a half inch. It, maybe it's yeah. a half inch sampler, but yeah. it, that's a lot of holes and a lot of work, and that's a very nice composite sample. Definitely, that's yeah. a very, very nice composite sample. But wow, just what a, mm, what a lot of work. And what I noticed is what a joy it was for, uh, for me to go do soil sampling when I just have to take one sample per area. And I typically recommend testing six greens. If it's a golf course, I recommend testing six greens, three fairways, and three T's. So to be able to go put the probe in the ground 12 times in total, <laughs> one probe, you know, one probe down to a 10 centimeter or four inch depth, put it in the bag. That's one sample done. You know, I could sample the whole course in less than an hour, which is pretty slick. Yeah. I mean, listen, it sounds like if you're doing 20 or 30, you like to go to parties and I'm going to go, old school, early 90s New York here, mm-hmm. you, you like to go to the limelight. But if you want to, you, you're going to just party with the in crowd. You're going to part. You're going to go to the, the scene where everybody's loving it. You're just going to go to the limelight where if you want to go hang with the outliers and just take one sample, right? One mm-hmm. sample per green. What did you say? Three per fairway and three per tee. Is that what you said? Do about 12 samples for the entire course. Then I'm going to go to CBGB's and well, go with the outliers and yeah, hang with them. Well, I, no, I'm recommending that you test uh, six different greens on the property, three different fairways okay, on the property. I understand. Three different tees. One and, sample from each one. Yeah, with one, one, uh, one subsample that makes up the entire sample. And 
when you do that, you can then check the variability. And so you can see what your lows are more accurately. That's, that's how it works in theory. So um, if anybody... If anybody is listening to this, this should be one of the most controversial things ever. Um, and I, I have a lot of my soil testing clients that I, I tell them, look, you've got an option. I kind of recommend if I was doing it, I'd do the single core. And most people, I, I would say, yeah, more than 50% of my soil testing clients, they still stick with the composite sampling. They're comfortable doing it with the composite sampling. It's really hard to wrap your head around... Um, I, I think it's really, really hard to wrap your head around how taking one sample could give you a more accurate result than taking a hundred samples, right? So it's like the more samples you take, the more accurate the results should be. That's what I always thought. And it's taken a while for me to wrap my head around how taking a single sample and missing missing the back right of the green, missing the back left of the green, missing the center of the green, because I've just taken a sample, a single sample from a random spot that happened to be on the front left of the green. How is that more accurate than taking 12 subsamples from all across the green? And I, I know most people still think that way. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun one. It is a fun one. I, it kind of would, re, it would remind me of if I was having a phone interview with, with a certain headhunter, Mm -hmm. And they were saying something to me about, hey, what what are you doing these days that's <laughs> sort of different? And I said, well, I'm just taking one subsample during my so soil sampling. And this headhunter would get particularly angry and say, I need to go back to college and take an introductory soils class. It sounds like that type of line of thinking, right? Yeah. Tell them you... You sample fairways by just going to the 150 line. So whether there's 150 markers or whether you're just at the point where you're 150 yards from the center of the green. We have ornamental bushes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> palm, palm trees. Yeah, there, yeah there's courses yeah. in Thailand that have Bird these, boxes. There's beautiful shrubs that are... Um, uh, not not at every course, but some courses they'll have the the type of typical shrub. I don't know the scientific or common name of it, but it's it's one that is often pruned into shapes like elephants or um, tigers oh, or that sort of uh, yeah something like that. And so you'll have awesome. you'll have that. that. And so you so you so you go find and you just get between the elephants and you go and just take one sample and say okay that's that's three fairway. I love it. You tell I that to it. your headhunter and see if I that will. gets you the job. Probably yeah, so, not. So, so if if I had a new segment on the show, it could be like how, uh, yeah, it could be related to uh, interview. How advice. to not get the headhunter? How to not get the job from a headhunter? Yeah, which which stuff you hear from Micah? <laughs> which stuff you hear on the ATC double cut that you should uh, repeat in public? And uh, which stuff you should just keep to yourself? Yes. Wait until you get the job. <laughs> yeah, you got to. You should. Not, that's a great segment. We got to. We got to workshop that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what? All right. So I, I'm looking now. Oh, real quick. Let me. One yeah, yeah. question on this. Did you find of it? So when you did. So when you did the one sample and you did the five. Did you notice a difference? Obviously well, I, not, because you're you're recommending just taking one. Yeah. So, um, to summarize this, 
uh, it was more than 10 golf courses that we did a paired set of samples. So I said, take the composite sample as usual, which is going to be five subsamples at least. And, and most people are taking five. Some are taking a little bit more. And then I said, take a single core from the same area and submit that as a sample. And then I calculated the fertilizer recommendations because the worry with this would be, would be that we miss a deficiency. The, 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 what the worry would be, the problem with, with this single core sampling would be if we miss a phosphorus deficiency because we've, we've taken the samples in such a uh, terribly incorrect way and we miss a deficiency and now the grass quality suffers. So I calculated the fertilizer recommendation that would be uh, given for all the composite samples and from the single core samples from the same area. And in 99% of the cases, they were the same. So we, we, the cases in which we failed to detect a deficiency were zero. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah, so based on so one based, done. That's right. So based on that, I'm like, okay, we're getting the exact same recommendation. The results are very similar. Uh, so I'm comfortable doing it. Now, the advantages of this are more theoretical at this point. So the advantages in time are proven. There's, there's no doubt that it's way more uh, time efficient to just go take a single sample. But I, from my data, which is it's a substantial number of samples, but it's not a big enough data set to prove this. Uh, I mentioned earlier that when you take a composite sample, you miss the lows and you miss the highs because they all get mixed together. So you never really find out what your lowest low areas are and what your highest high areas are. So theoretically, the single core sampling is going to capture that. My data don't prove that yet. Okay. So, so I'm just talking about that theoretically, but I can't prove it. I think if we would take a thousand or two thousand sites, and and if we took enough samples, we would start to see that the lowest lows are always with the single core sampling and not the composite, and the highest highs are always with the single core sampling. And that to me is really useful to know. And then the other thing, um, yeah, I mean. Oh, the, the other thing, uh, and I've suggested this in some other discussions. Uh, I also haven't written a blog post about this or shared it, but soil organic matter is a pretty important thing. Um, it, it's important for water storage, water movement, nutrient supply. Um, grass grows better in soils that have a higher soil organic matter content up to the point when it doesn't. If you're in a sand root zone, you get too much soil organic matter. The water infiltration rate could be so, excuse me, could be so slow, and you could be holding so much water that it's not an ideal growing environment for the grass. So it's important to measure that accurately. I've found, and this might be statistically significant, we tend to get lower organic matter, soil organic matter content when we do composite sampling, and I think that's just a bias in the sampling. When you when you take a sandy um, material and you submit like a gallon of it. Let's say you've got a gallon of sandy material. You'll get a lot of separation between the sand and the organic material and the soil organic matter at the top. Organic so when they scoop, material, I like it. 
Yep. So when they when they when they process that sample at the lab and when they scoop, they're more likely to get more of the sandy material. But if you submit just a single core sample, there's less material to work with the organic matter and the the soil organic matter and the total organic material are a bit more concentrated because it's just a single core and it's never had a chance for things to get separated. And it's more likely that you'll get a little bit more of the soil organic matter when it gets scooped. That's something that, that does seem to be possibly significant, uh, significant, uh, even in the little bit of data that I have. And that's another theoretical reason for why I just like the way the sample handling and the sample uh, process at the lab works. So both the sample handling for the person collecting the sample and shipping the sample, and then the way that sample gets handled at the lab, I'd rather send less material. Of course, we still want to make sure we send enough for the lab to work with, but sending all this extra sand, especially from sand-based root zones, sending all this extra sand is more likely that you're not actually testing something that's evenly from the, the zero inch down to the four inch depth. It's more likely that you're getting more of that material down near the bottom because it separates. You, you get a lot more of that sand that separates and then that's what gets scooped at the lab. So we tend to be biased a little bit towards a deeper depth in the sample. And, and that's, that's also kind of theoretical, but it's something that I've been paying attention to. Hashtag one and done. Yeah, that, that, uh, that could be, could be uh, a could good hashtag. Be the one? Yeah. yeah, hashtag one and done. Yeah, so, awesome. so anyway, this is one I've, I've blogged about but it was in early 2020, right before the pandemic hit. In fact, I wrote that. I wrote that series of blog posts. I was in Japan. Um, COVID had already been detected in Bangkok, and there were still a lot of people traveling from Wuhan. You know, I, it was something like the Thai press was was pretty. Uh, I mean, it was front page news from January, and my brother was visiting in Thailand, and they were detecting COVID in various places in Thailand in January of 2020. And it was like, oh my goodness, there's, and, and there were so many Chinese tourists and they're saying, yeah, there's like 30,000 people from Wuhan who are in Thailand on holiday right now. So it's just like, oh my goodness, if we go to that market, is it, and, and there were all these rumors about, oh, there's an outbreak at this place. There's an outbreak at that place. But they hadn't really stopped travel and nothing was locked down yet. And then in February, I went to Japan and I was in Japan in February of 2020. And that's when I was finishing up these blog posts. And I think with all the news that was going on in the world at that time, um, yeah, this is something that I kind of forgot about a little bit too. So I, I can see why people didn't necessarily read it. Yeah. I remember when I started really thinking about COVID was on our birthday, January 29th, mm -hmm. right? Of that year, 2020. And I just, that's when it kind of hit me. That's when I started, I was seeing it. It was, I was seeing it in the news, in my newsfeed in December, right? November, December. But when I started to really think about it and began to taking it seriously and thinking, hmm, this could be something bigger than, bigger than what, something that i should probably take seriously was right around our birthdays i, I remember uh 
my wife and I went to New Hope, Pennsylvania to celebrate my birthday. And I remember just being in bed and going through my news feed on my iPhone and reading an article about COVID on our birthday and being like, hmm, this is this is pretty serious. So, yeah, by the time this blog post went out and everything's going on, I could see why maybe this one didn't get as many reads as it should have. Let's let's move on to another post. Um, we've got so many interesting ones here. Yeah, there are I'm gonna talk, some good ones. I'll talk real quick about catching up with my reading. Um, this one uh, was a uh, newspaper section that had my picture. It also has a picture of, uh, let's see, the professional golfer Sung J M and uh, Andrew McDaniel uh, down in the bottom right. And me with some pretty nice hair and a mustache. So it's, it's nice to see that beautiful picture. But uh, it's a review of the third Nutranta Best Practices Seminar. Nutranta is a company in the Philippines that uh, distributes products. And I was there talking about uh, a continuous improvement system for turf grass. I put a video, uh, I recorded a screencast of that. I think this is really uh interesting one and when you watch these videos this video is only 21 minutes and 13 seconds long you can watch it at high speed and just blast through it but i talked about how you can get continuous improvement by measuring the nutrients and then adjusting measuring the total organic material and then adjusting and measuring the playability that you get in response to the work that you're doing and then adjusting and that is a wonderful system that works for any grass anywhere. And that, that's something that I wish more people would pay attention to and, and would implement because I've seen it be so effective and other people have seen it be so effective. And that's something that I just want to make a, uh, what can I say? A, uh, another, another notice of it. I, I just, I, this is something that I think it would be worth your time to check out. So that, that is that post. Yeah, I, I know it's, it's something that listen between COVID hitting and between me ramping up the podcast. And you think that somebody that podcasts every week with all these different people, they'd be up on these I don't want to say trends, but these latest approaches, philosophies to growing grass for the for the game of golf, right? For managing the the playing surfaces, managing the growth rate, things of that nature, that I'd be more attuned to what's going on. And and something that I just recently downloaded was Jason Haynes's growth ratio uh, mm -hmm. Google spreadsheet. And I think it's it really relates to this this blog post, right? That you keeping up on my reading in this video that you posted, and being able to adjust your your programs or however you want to your your flexible fertilizer systems or or what have you, however you want to approach it to creating the best surfaces, and it's really reinvigorated me as a as a as a turf grass manager well just yeah so i'm using that and i'm using the greenkeeper app in in concert with one another mm -hmm. and i'm getting and i feel like going into this year 
then I'm going to have a really good idea of how the grass is growing, how the grass is responding. And then I'm going to be able to sort of manipulate my inputs in a way that's going to make the grass perform at its highest peak. So I'm pre- I feel pretty stoked about this. Well, that's, that's good. I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad you're also looking into the growth ratio. I find this type of stuff pretty fun. Uh, I find it makes greenkeeping a little bit more fun to have some numbers to check uh, in addition to just the feel of, of how the conditions are. So if you can see a quantitative result in terms of how much the grass is growing in response to your growth regulator applications, if you see a numerical result in response to the fertilizer or to the weather and how your or how your grass is responding to a lot of traffic or to a weekend in which you did some double cutting and rolling and then you're measuring what the growth ratio is the next Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday those kind of things don't really take any extra time it's a tiny bit of extra time but it, really to me it adds in, it adds enjoyment to the work and and it allows you then to plan for the next weekend or to plan for the next fertilizer app, you can look at that and you can say, yeah, the, based on these numbers and based on what we're seeing with the grass and based on the weather forecast, here's what we're going to do. Well, what I'm trying, Michael, what I'm trying to do is, uh, so it's through years of experience, right? And I, and I think that I started getting into using regulators a lot more than I should have over the past couple of years, right? I feel like I was over-regulating. Not, I, I think the greens were performing well, but I was seeing these, I was seeing the the collars and and the rough surrounding the greens not perform so well, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think they were getting over-regulated. I, I don't know. It, it's just an assumption that they're probably getting over-regulated. So going into this year, I'm going to actually try not to use regulators until I absolutely have to, until I see the growth rate getting to a point where I think it's out of control and I need to check it. So I'm looking at Jason Hayes' growth growth ratio, uh, his, his spreadsheet, right? And I'm putting in my daily numbers. And right now it's... I'm also getting used to the metric, which is it's foreign to me, mm-hmm. obviously, but I'm getting used to the metric units and, and getting used to that and getting used to those numbers. But what I'm really trying and what I'm also doing is is I'm treating those areas, right? I've gone out a little further. I'm squaring off these areas of the greens with, with, with our spray program, right? So mm-hmm. like Instead of just going out with, okay, I'm going to go out with 10 pounds per acre and put my usual 10th down every two weeks and being so programmed with it and just, you know, I'm going to do my four ounce acre of rate of, of Primo every week or I'm going to do it with a new, I'm going to do my four ounce of a new and, or, you know, I'm just going to go out and I'm not going to use any regulators. I'm going to put enough fertilizer and that was the thing that jason and you said on one of the episodes jason was like i just throw a little in there like i don't even measure it out i can kind of just eyeball it right that's what he was Mm -hmm. saying i think Mm -hmm. something along those lines so that's kind of how he's just trying to move things in the right direction yeah and that's all i'm trying to do and it's almost i want to plant to be and i've been with john jacob who was a really good friend of mine and we've been talking a lot about this and Mm -hmm. and we were 
trying to get to this point of, and I know John Riley talks about this too, of plant health, which mm-hmm. will equate to performance. And I'm I'm really excited going into the season. I, I really am because it's kind of given me a new lease on greenkeeping. I'm in year. I've been a head greenkeeper, head superintendent since 2007. So this is my 16th year as a as a head greenkeeper, golf course superintendent, and it's kind of reinvigorated me again. Here I am getting reinvigorated at the age of 51 with and being excited going into the season to try something that I think might help the turf perform at a level where people are going to be blown away. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And I like that kind of excitement and, uh, I'm, yeah, I think it makes, it makes the work more fun. So, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. And, and it's, and that's kind of the cool thing about my job. It's there. Listen, there's always pressure. There's self-inflicted pressure, but the course that I manage, Mike, it's a place where people go and relax and have fun. People are learning how to play golf. It, greens don't need to stimp at 10 and be bobbling at an 8, right? It, it's mm-hmm. They don't have to be great, but I want them to. I, I want them to come off that course and saying to themselves, wow, those greens performed really well today. I, I love the way the surfaces acted for my Pro V1, for my Bridgestone, for my top flight, whatever ball you want to use, man. I, that's what I want, and, and I'm stoked going into this year. All right. Let's, let's, we've only managed to get down to, uh, oh, my goodness, we got down to number seven. How are you doing with time, Joe? I'm good, man. I, it's Stevie's in bed. Rory's in bed. I'm good. Okay. We can uh, go as long as you want. All right. Well, I don't want to bore our listeners, uh, so let's see if we can get the highlights of these uh, remaining okay. ones. We'll go. We'll blast through them. I'll try. I know I tend to uh, rant and rave. Uh, I'll try to uh, tight. I'll try to tighten things up a little bit, Micah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to recommend another uh, video trailer. Um, this was hilarious. It was me in old school attire. Uh, Bjarni Hannison helped out with some audio to make the audio sound pretty old. Uh, I, uh, you can see my golf swing with hickory clubs. And uh, it's a trailer for a uh, episode three of the Grammar of Greenkeeping video show. Then it's the Flying Blind trailer, eight things to know, measure, and adjust. And that's something that that. Uh, is a video some people say you know they post video content and they get so many so much interaction and so on um i I find that uh there's not necessarily because if people have to click through to watch it they they tend not to but this is one that's kind of funny and uh yeah it's a 30 30 second trailer i think yeah i I think you sent this to me and i i think i i did a little i recommend it that you try to make it look maybe make the video look old timey and you did with sort of making it look like a reel right a mm-hmm. film reel yeah and just the clicking you know and and well yeah, yeah so. bjarni 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 processed that audio and he added in some uh he's like yeah back in in the 1920s or 1930s 
um, you you would have had these kind of microphones and the sound would have sounded like this. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, so so we there was a lot of uh, work going into this. And, and you would have talked all fast. Hey, this is Michael Woods, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it you looked could, like, you know, it would have been like the, mm-hmm. you know, Babe Ruth running the bases, right? Everything is a yeah. little speeded up. Yeah. yeah. So it, anyway, that that's one you can you can uh, watch the real video too, which is kind of interesting. I think uh, that flying blind. I think I had uh, some guests on that video too. I think Lee Strutt. Lee Strutt, yeah. Uh, Lee Strutt when he was a Le bold. David Batier from Catalonia, from and Brad Revel, right? And and Brad Revel, and yeah. they all shared some practice. So I talked with three. Uh, course managers from around the world and they they provided some insight on this about uh let's see what what was that about eight things to know measure and adjust so we you heard from me about eight things that i thought were important and you also heard some input from the greenkeepers so uh, or course managers so that's that's one that that is uh is a nice one to go back and look at um yeah absolutely let's see what's next we're gonna keep going uh yeah this one this one was a surprise to me you know the the masters got rescheduled that year from april to november yeah this was fascinating i reread this one i remember reading it when it was posted and i reread this one today and i was fascinated but you explain it because it's it well, was really cool. Well, I've I've always told people people rave about the grass conditions at Augusta National for the Masters in April, and rightly so because the conditions are excellent, and there's a lot of work done to to make that happen. But it also happens to be at the proper time of year, and it's interesting how salubrious the weather tends to be in Augusta, Georgia, during the second week of April every year. And or the first full the first week, I think that it ends the second Sunday in April. So I call it the the first full yeah the first full week of April maybe. Um, the weather tends to be salubrious. If you calculate the growth potential, it's close to one. It's pretty high. Yeah, it's what like eighty five percent, right? Eighty five to ninety percent. It's something like that on on average. Uh, yeah, from, from 1990 to 2019, the average temperature had been 62 degrees Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius. That temperature corresponds to a cool season growth potential of 85%. So yeah. on average, during Master's Week, from Monday to Sunday, you get a growth potential of 85%. And I calculated this in April because I wanted to know what would we tend to get if it was an average November... And in November, it was much lower. It was uh, 35%. So you'd, so I was basically predicting that there was going to be a different growth potential in November for the Masters than there was in April. I thought that would be more interesting to people because a lot of people do uh, click through on the posts that are about growth potential. And I thought combine the Masters and growth potential, that must be interesting. But that was uh, one that very few people looked at yeah i remember looking at it and find it and finding it fascinating uh because yeah you didn't get that you you didn't get those conditions uh in november they were different mm-hmm. 
But how about the months leading up, right? Like the months they were the leading, same. The same, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the yeah, the months leading up were the same. Yeah. I don't think that the growth potential had much to do with the way the grass conditions were at the November Masters in 2020. It's more just to do with the uh, the relative immaturity of the perennial ryegrass overseed. Of the so, overseed, right, mm-hmm. right. So, so it's just uh, when you're holding the tournament in April, you've got grass that is uh, six or seven or eight months in the ground, and it's just a different maturity level than what you get when you've got grass that's been in the ground for two months. Okay, so they, they begin there. They do their overseed in September is basically. Um, I'm not really sure exactly when they do it, but I would expect that they do it sometime around then. I, okay. I think if you did it any earlier, uh, it, it it's just too hot in Augusta. And yeah, if you did it any yeah. later, you couldn't open the open the course when they open the course. So um, I, I suspect it's it's done around then. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so the next one uh, is another turf tourism one. Um, this one's pretty cool. It's about... I love this one. This yeah, one is great. I went to a bent grass nursery in Japan, and this was at a golf course a little... It's, it's near Narita Airport, which is... Uh, the big a big airport on the outskirts of Tokyo, and I saw this bentgrass nursery, and there's all these seedlings that were germinated, and there were a lot of what looked like weeds growing too, which was this broadleaf plant, and it turned out that it was on purpose. And the greenkeeper explained to me that they plant those, which it's a it's a daikon radish. And those seeds, they germinate very quickly within a couple of days. And so they can check whether the effect of the fumigation or any pre-plant herbicides has worn off. Um, they can check that and make sure that they're going to get a good germination. So they use these as a germination check. And then, of course, when you mow it, um, those radishes are just going to go away. It reminded me when I did a grow-in at Odessa National and... We did all the seeding of the bent grass, but all that germinated was the crabgrass. So from July to August, I kept looking at crabgrass fairways, right? Crabgrass mm-hmm. teas. Greens were clean. Greens were clean. They, they didn't get much crabgrass on them. A little bit, not much. And people kept telling me, don't worry about it. Just when the weather cools, go out there with, with some quinclorac. Mm-hmm. drive and spray it and you're going to be surprised at how much bent grass you have and lo and behold the temperatures begin to cool and it finally gets cool enough to where i feel comfortable enough to spray an herbicide and we spray the herbicide we eliminate all the crabgrass and there's this beautiful bent grass strain right underneath of it and people were right. They kept telling me, "Listen, the bank, the crabgrass is going to act as like a carrier. It's gonna it's gonna protect the bank grass from from the heat and everything." And you're like a, you're going to be a nurse, a nurse. Yeah, it was crop. a nursery crop. Yeah, but this yeah. one was more of an the radish was more of an indicator. But mm-hmm. 
it just kind of reminded me of that when i read that blog it reminded me of my time at odessa national and that's the cool thing about reading right you read and it just brings you back it, it, no matter what you read it there's always these what stories that you read or, or articles or what you wrote that remind you of times in your life and that's what it reminded me of and plus i thought it was really cool it, it's it's one of these ingenious things to do to make sure that your that your soil is right right or the the growing conditions are right yeah because you make so much investment in that bent grass seed and you really want to get a good take and you don't want any of the fumigant or herbicide to have a detrimental effect if any is still lingering in the soil and that's where i think that type of innovation to plant a seed that germinates in just a couple days can help to verify that those thousands that you've spent on the seed is going to be safe to apply at that time. Yeah, really cool. I loved it. And then uh, another one, this is a good one, uh, photosynthetically active radiation, which is expressed on a daily basis as the daily light integral. And I wrote this in November of 2020, and I'd, I found a satellite service that records the solar global solar radiation global meaning at the earth's surface and solar radiation meaning the light energy from the sun and you can convert that into photosynthetically active radiation and so i could get that daily for anywhere in the world and i thought that was amazing so i made these charts and i calculated this for um for bangkok and you can see like uh, during the during the summer season, which in Thailand would tend to be like February, March, April, it's dry, it's sunnier, and the average daily light integral was between 40 to 50. And then uh, it drops down as low, some weeks the average was as low, at, well, there were four weeks in the year with the average less than 30, uh, which is pretty awful for low-cut Bermuda grass. So this is something that I thought was really interesting, and I shared a link to, um, I'm sure I shared a link to where you can get that data. The yeah, NASA, at the, at, right? Yeah, at the bottom, I shared a link to where you could get, get that data. And I, I also looked this up for Fukuoka, and I, I looked it up for uh, Royal Canberra in Australia. I looked it up and, and made these charts for different places. Now, I've gone on to make an app that you can use anywhere. Um, I don't have this set up for a QR code or anything right now, but I'll put a link to that app in the show notes. If you're interested in generating this type of chart, in fact, the one that, that you generate in the app is a little bit more detailed than this because it looks at monthly averages and it adds up your weekly averages. And it's for the past year at any location you choose. So you can look at what your DLI has been or your photosynthetically active radiation. That's something that uh, it's hard to access those data, basically. Um, it, it's easy to get temperature data. It's easy to measure how much it rains. But it, it's hard to get your photosynthetically active radiation um, if, if you don't have a sensor. And those sensors go out of calibration really quick. So I'm, I even uh, question some of the numbers that, that you would get from your own sensor. And, and I like these types of data. 
and and it's pretty amazing you can do this anywhere in the world see you want to check what st andrews scotland what their what type of uh photosynthetically active radiation they get you can check it or you want to check trump doral you can check it or you want to check uh tpc scottsdale you can check that dupont country club i need to check that yeah or you know the brighter the upcoming Ryder cup in italy near rome you can check that and you and then you can see what how, what was the photosynthetically active radiation during the Ryder cup week uh, if that week was held last, if the Ryder Cup was held last year, so you can get some idea of of the grass growing conditions in in terms of the light that the grass would see. I know I need to take advantage of that. I, I'm going to admit I did not read this one. I remember seeing it. I probably skimmed over it and was it just seemed. I'm going to maybe take a guess of why people didn't read it. It's maybe seemed difficult challenging to kind of understand right or to maybe to do it right it's a little uh, intimidating yeah that one that one if you're not interested in the topic to begin with um and then i'm talking about specific locations i was talking about canberra i was talking about fukuoka and i was talking about bangkok and maybe you don't care about the details of something called daily light integral in units of moles per square meter per day in those locations, I can understand where it might not be so interesting. Um, and I used to, I used to be intimidated by this. I've talked about it before. When I was a graduate student, I would read papers about minimum daily light integral for Tiff Eagle Bermuda grass or something, and think, "Wow, whoever did that research is a genius. They're really knowledgeable about things that." I don't think I'm ever going to be able to comprehend because you read these papers sometimes and it's mathematical notation and units that I don't know what they mean. A photosynthetic photon flux density, PPFD, micromoles per square meter per second and these kind of things. And it, it's just like it's all new and it's all incomprehensible. And I used to be I used to respond like that even when I had already had a PhD because I'm like, okay, I know about soil chemistry a little bit. I know about turf grass management in general a little bit. I know about soil testing and fertilizer pretty good. But when it comes to light and stuff, I'll just leave that to the experts because I can't wrap my head around what a photosynthetic photon flux density is, which is what actually gets measured. But then... I started looking into it and I realized, hey, this is not so difficult. And, but I imagine a lot of people are still at the same stage that I was, which is like, it's all incomprehensible. And if that's the case, somebody starts talking about PPFD and DLI, I could see why they're like, ah, I, I don't need to tune into that. So what DLI number are we looking for? Well, on a sunny day in July in, in, in your region, you'd you'd have a DLI of about sixty or sixty-five. Okay, so we're okay. talking about Philadelphia, uh, Newark, Delaware. There you go. And there's a lot of places in 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 most parts of the world, unless you get really close to the uh, north or south pole. If you're in your your midsummer season. On a clear day with no clouds, no clouds that are blocking any of the light, you'll have a total daily 
light integral, a, a daily light integral, which is all the photosynthetically active radiation that falls on a single section of the earth or a single section of turf. In, in full sun, on a sunny day, in summer, you'll be about 60 to 65. So that's, that's what you're using for comparison for what your shade would be. So if you're in shade for 33% of the day, then on a sunny day, your DLI is going to be about 40. Okay. And so if you're, you can kind of combine that, maybe if you have the Sunseeker app and, and you're, mm-hmm. you can convert that. So if you have a shady tuck green, you can calculate how much PAR or DLI you're getting on that green per, per day. You, you absolutely can. It's a little bit more complicated because you have more at noon when the sun is closer to directly overhead. You're going to get more light intensity than you will at 5.30 a.m. when the sun is just peeking up over the horizon. So if you're in tree shade at 5.30 a.m., that's not a huge detriment to you in terms of what your total daily light integral will be over the day. But if you're in shade until 10:30 a.m. that's going to have a significant impact because there's a lot more light. You'll be at a maximum possible daily a, a, a maximum instantaneous light for for what cool season grass can use from something like 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. So any of the shade that happens I I often use 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. as your cutoffs just to practically talk about this. If you've got shade after 9 a.m. and if you've got shade on your turf before 3 p.m., then you you may have an issue. But if you've got if you've got no shade from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., you've got six hours of uninterrupted light. Then uh, I think those tend to be areas that don't have a, a major shade issue. And so yes, if you have the Sunseeker app and you um, and you can calculate this, which I understand most people aren't going to know how to calculate it, but um, I have code on my computer that could calculate this. If if you said, if we have shade at, at this particular minute, I know what the light intensity has the potential to be, and then we can we could work through it. Sounds good. I, I got to check it out. I got to check it out. I got to go in Monday and, and plug in. Yeah, I'll hit the link on the show yeah. notes. Yeah, go to the show notes, hit the link, figure out what this is for your place, and you'll see that you probably are going to peak. Uh, you'll have some weeks that are 48, 52, something like that um, at, at, at the peak. And then, yeah, basically, you look at 30, which is about 50% of the maximum. 30 is a good number for cool season grass that's cut short, Um and if you start seeing that you're consistently less than 30, that's going to be a problem. Um, and Mike Richardson's done some research about that, um, or in his grad student, I think it was Travis Russell that did some of that research with Mike. And, and I think 30 is the number that they look at. I, I typically look at numbers of 40, 30, and 20, but I'm generally considering this for warm season grass because warm season grass needs more light than cool season grass. For low-cut Bermuda grass, you should be at 40 or above. If you're ever less than 40, I think you have to take action to manage it more effectively or or you're going to run into problems. And I look at 30 for seashore paspalum. 
so seashore paspalum, you can manage at 30 or above. And manila grass, soja matrella, you can generally manage at 20 or above. And for cool season grass, you're usually looking at 20 or 30. And so then you can, now you have to start considering uh, your tree shade and other things because you'll always have enough light in full sun. Uh, there's some parts of the world though, like in Bangkok, we were looking at full sun and I showed some, uh, some weeks there in Bangkok. Uh, the temperatures are, let's see, I've went ahead one post. I want to go back one post. Uh Oh, uh, the last year of DLI with, with weekly averages. Um, so if I make that chart bigger, this is in Bangkok. There are the first week of August and in September, no, sorry, in October, the first week, second week and fourth week of October all had an average DLI in full sun of less than 30, which is just uh, catastrophic for low-cut Bermuda grass. And the reason for that is because of heavy cloud cover. And uh, for cool season grass, that wouldn't be catastrophic, though, because in if you're in full sun, it's only catastrophic for cool season grass if you're in shade. So... This is something that I find quite useful in understanding which grasses will work and, and what management adjustments may need to be taken. And probably a good tool to use if you're wanting to do a renovation and you're deciding on turf type. It'd be a yeah. great thing to use. Yeah, and if you're, uh, or if you're deciding if you need to take out trees or not. Yeah, true, Cause, which cause is you always can, th a thorny issue. Yeah, but you can just say, look, the grass is not going to perform. Like, it's easy for me to say that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can you can use it to justify grass selection decisions or tree removal or, or other decisions. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm going to move to one more pose. I think there's w just one more that I want to show, and that's number two. Because number one is... Uh, usually rightly so the worst viewed post uh i don't even bother doing it anymore it was interesting for me at one time um which is 11 years of at that time it was 11 years of website visits by device type um <laughs> that's something that might be of interest to me and very few other people in the world uh i was just checking how uh how many people were visiting from phones from computers or from tablets. And it used to be when I started this website before 2010, more than 90% of the visits to the site were from computers. And then for a while, there were a lot of tablets um, and mobile phones or, or cell phones had just been increasing and increasing to where it was greater than 50%. And I don't check this anymore because I just assume that um, 60 or 70% of the site visits are on mobile devices. And tablets kind of had a peak, and then they they declined again. So now it's just kind of divided between computers and, uh, and cell phones, and I don't even do a blog post about it because I realize nobody cares, and I can check that privately without sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to do it next year. I want to know, Micah. Okay, well, if, if you we You can just want... text me the info. 
Okay. Well, it would be crazy go. if it if it failed to make the list of the bomb <laughs> posts. So the <laughs> the one that I was surprised this was number two for the least viewed posts, and this was the total organic matter. I need to update this because I you see how I recently had a discussion in a previous episode with Brian Whitlark, and I said that I've been inconsistent in the terminology. I wrote in this post total organic matter. But that's confusing. The terminology I would use today in 2023, I would say total organic material. Material, right. And I used to just affix a total to it. So instead of calling this soil organic matter, I used to call it total organic matter. I should use total organic material because I prefer to use the term soil organic matter for the material that's the size of a grain of sand or smaller and it's passed through a sieve to make sure that happens and all the thatch has been removed. And then when we test everything, including the thatch, I call that total organic material. And here I'm talking about total organic material and I showed the predicted distributions and percentiles of total organic material, I will say, in the surface two centimeters of warm season grass putting greens and these can turn out to be some pretty big numbers. And we can have numbers like, well, if it was Bermuda grass, I would say on average, you'd be 7.7%. Um, the first 75th, per, well, the, the lower 75% would be all the way up to 9.7%. So you'd have 25% of the samples above 9.7% total organic material. And if you have an unknown species, uh, I would expect the average to be about 6.7%. And zoysia, which I label as kori here, uh, which is what that grass is called in Japan when it's used on greens, the average at that time was 11.9%. So this is something that I think is pretty interesting because these density curves also show, do you see how they tail off to the right? And they go all the way up to like, 16, 18, 20%. Seashore paspalum did not in my data, um, but cori and Bermuda grass do. They go all the way up to the, so there's some samples that are testing at 20%, which is a lot of organic material. How did those, uh, those, do you know how they performed the, the, the Bermuda grass and the cori at 20%? Were they performing okay? Uh, yeah, they're a little bit too healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 yeah. so they tend to be a little bit softer and that's the type of turf that might grow a little bit fast, might uh, be a little bit softer, might be a little bit more prone to scalping. However, if you evaluate it on how healthy the grass is, the grass is, is happy and healthy. Um, but I generally recommend, uh, something where yeah 12 percent or so might might be a little bit more a number that i'm more comfortable with um okay yeah but i i i don't like to put single numbers out there because it depends a bit on the core so i think this is something that you should choose the number course by course so you look at these results over time you measure the total organic material and then you test it again a year later and test it again a year after that and you see you know how much organic material 
you know how much total organic material you measured in 2022. And then you know what work you did in 2023 in terms of sand and coring or solid tining and filling the holes with sand or dry jecting or whatever. You know what's been done and how much sand has been applied. And then you can see, did my organic material go up or did it go down? And based on that, you can recalibrate what you're going to do in 2024 because you'll also be measuring your playability. So if, if if you know that you had good playing conditions and your total organic material went up a little bit, then you can say, you know what? I know that I can still produce good playing conditions at this higher level of organic material. So I'm not going to worry about an arbitrary target of 6% or something, which a lot of people are trying. They've got in their mind that they should have 6% or 5% or 4%. And so they're, yeah. they're putting so much sand. When I talked with Brian Whitlark, he said some of the worst, the, the lowest shear strength, meaning the, uh, the sample just doesn't stay together. The surface of the green doesn't the stay together. Strength. Yeah. Which I found interesting. I, uh, I just had uh, Zach Nicolutis on, and he alluded to surface strength. And then I listened mm -hmm. to your podcast with Whitlark, and they mentioned surface strength. And it's amazing, right? And he, he was saying, yeah, they have low organic matter, but the surface strength, a ball hits it, and it just explodes, mm -hmm. right? And so there's, there's nothing there to pad the, the impact of the ball. Yeah, and it's like people have uh, done too much of a good thing because, yeah. it, right? And, and, and I think having these targets for low organic matter or low organic material, you see, it's, it's hey, hard. I know it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's, no, it's I tough. Gotcha. But I know everybody, anybody that's still listening at this point, I think you understand what I'm meaning to say. Um, total organic material is everything. Soil organic matter is what you measure on a nutrient test when the samples uh, been passed through a sieve. Right. And right. trying, trying to hit these arbitrarily low numbers I just, I don't think it should be the same everywhere because if you have a seashore paspalum green, it has a lot of rhizomes. If it's healthy, if you have a zoysia green, it's going to have a lot of rhizomes if it's healthy. If you have a Bermuda grass green, it's going to have a lot of stolons if it's healthy. Those warm season grass stolons and rhizomes hold the surface together and they're also measured as total organic material, which is why you really would like to have, if you're going to have a surface that's going to hold together and, and really have a nice resistance against a ball breaking it apart, you would like to see that um, total organic material be higher a little bit, which is if you've listened to the recent ATC office hours with uh, Richard Forsyth from Royal Melbourne Golf Club, he talked about this also. When they do their innovative organic material management program by crazy. by stripping off a very thin layer of grass at the surface with a sod cutter. Imagine taking a sod cutter to the greens at Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Would you like I to do that job? Want, I would not want to do that job, man. <laughs> I imagine you I get used to it. To, yeah, Plus, right. But yeah, I, but think about it. One of the most renowned best golf courses in the world are they're stripping their their organic material management practice is stripping a little bit of it and mm -hmm. then getting rid of the organic material mm -hmm. replacing it with sand mine well, 
not far from the chorus or uh, yeah no they're not really even replacing they're just running a grade and they cut off all the organic layer um to where it's it's darker and they get they cut that off and they get down to the original material which is just sand because it's on the sand belt on these deep dunes and then they run a grading across it they smooth it out and then they put the grass that they've cut off right back down the interesting thing that richard forsyth said about that very interesting process and we'll put a direct link to that conversation also in the show notes um he said that initially the greens are firm but the ball doesn't really react with the peak um, bounce and the peak type of firmness until those greens have matured for two or three or four years. So it's really they get the peak firmness three years after doing that when some organic material has developed and, and the roots have kind of anchored it down. It makes sense, right? When you think about it, I, I, if he would have just told you, right? It, it, when you're listening to it and he, and he's saying it, you're thinking to yourself, "That's crazy." But when you sit back and reflect on it and think about it, it makes sense. It's just getting it's getting stronger. It needs to get it needs to strengthen itself, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't you? Were you surprised when? Richard said that they, when I asked him how often they top dress, and he said, like, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. I wasn't surprised. No. I mean. You saw that one coming? Yeah, because. Because you, there are people practicing that. There, there, there are people practicing that type of top dressing program, and it just made sense. Plus, I, I kind of, I don't know. I've been. Well, Andrew McDaniel, who is one of your best friends, that's the way he does it. And mm-hmm. he hosts one of the most renowned tournaments in Japan, the the, the uh, Augusta tournament K- that they KBC have. KBC Augusta. The KBC Augusta. And, you know, it didn't surprise me. I mean, I'm sure it surprised a lot of people, but it didn't surprise me when he said it. What surprised me was the hydroject, the Toro hydroject, when he said, yeah, we hydroject these things. And then mm-hmm. when he was talking about the stripping and the that totally surprised me. Yeah. That they go to that detail. It was insane. It was awesome. Yeah, that's it's old school. It's I really appreciate Richard uh, joining me for that and sharing what they do. And that's a world-renowned course for design and for playability and to get that type of behind the scenes insight into what they're doing. And it's really innovative because there's not many places in the world that, that manage greens with such infrequent top dressing, no with another one. Yeah. Sorry. Got to give a shout out to Chris Trudebaugh. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Chris Trudebaugh shares a lot, but he's not, uh, He's not managing as extreme as uh, as what they're doing at Royal Melbourne in in right. terms of cutting the sod off the greens, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> or, or not even sod. They're just just the grass yeah. plants and with as yeah, little root as possible. And think about how when they had the Presidents Cup there, and what was that twenty? What year? Ni- was that? Nineteen. Nineteen. Okay. I think 19. it was November of twenty nineteen. You're right. You're right. And just how people were, 
salivating and Tiger Woods saying it's this is how golf should be played and mm-hmm. just yeah Bradley Klein just losing himself and tweeting about the how awesome the President's Club I just remember people just couldn't express how awesome the conditions were and why we can't mimic this in America and no well what's your first well do you want to strip your greens and not top dress and i i think when people hear what he does they're they probably can't believe that he's able to produce these conditions and and these services by just doing it the way that he explained but they 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 only do that once a decade or so yeah right so no so that you and you think well you could probably you could probably if you're in america you could if you get the growth rate right you could probably do a little bit more top dressing a little bit more frequent top dressing than they do at royal melbourne you could probably do conventional airification or solid time airification but just not not very intensively and you could you you certainly could realize from that that you can go a long time without sand top dressing and still maintain firmness. That's what I take from it. If if Royal Melbourne is is able to go for a year with no top dressing and still maintain firmness at a at a level that Tiger Woods will remark about it and Bradley Klein will remark about yeah, it right. and the entire golfing world of aficionados is raving about it yeah and yeah and it's not like they're removing the organic material with that sod process once a year it's once a decade so um it's unbelievable and why do you think he even top dresses that why does he even top dress did you did you ask him that or were you just like why do you even do it I, I didn't, but I assume it's a little bit for smoothness. They've, you know, they've got that Sutton's mix on the greens and some of those types are going to be stronger than others. So I imagine you've got some that grow a little bit, some that just kind of thin out a little bit when they, when it gets hot or when it, it gets under stress. So I suppose for smoothness, they would do top dressing and you just always want to connect you never really want to have pure thatch. You always want to have a little bit of connection between the soil and the surface. And and putting that little bit of top dressing every now and then, and this is assuming that your growth rate is under control and you're not growing thatch so thick that you completely lose that connection. I think it, it could be for smoothness and and to keep that connection between the surface and the soil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, listen, I'm not producing conditions that Tiger Woods is saying, oh, wow, Joe Glotty's got this place dialed in. This is how golf should be. So, yeah, I, I get yeah. it. Richard Forsyth, that killing it. Yeah, that's it's pretty cool. So, yeah, good get there. Yeah, it was it was good. Well, we yeah we talked a lot at the Masters, and we we had uh, that conversation at the Masters, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to ask him if he would come on the show to talk about this with me because I, and actually Andrew had told Andrew McDaniel went to the Presidents Cup, and I think um, oh the the gentleman from Virginia there there was another American there from from Virginia I I, I just remember his name right now. Um, 
but there were maybe oh, is, a, he the, is he the he's at the chevy chase club he's an Astro an australian maybe mm, no not no. now that that person may have been there but uh yeah i i i just don't remember and and it, it, it should come to my the tip of my tongue but it doesn't uh anyway paul van dyke or whatever what's that dude's name Paul Van Buren, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe that's it. Was it Paul Van Buren? He blocked me. Oh well, I I don't know. Maybe it, maybe that's who it is. Maybe yeah. it is. Maybe it was Paul Van Buren. Yeah. Well, He's you smart. you have a abrasive personality apparently. If you get blocked by, by, by a lot of people. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I, he's the only one I know who's who's blocked me. <laughs> Do you care to share what you did to? Uh, um, I think he like he and Michael Stackowitz were uh, Michael Stackowitz had a weed. His dad had a weed on his yard and he posted something and Michael was like, does anybody know how to kill this? And Paul responded kind of snarkily. Right. He was mm -hmm. being he kind of was just like, kill. That's a, why don't we learn to live with it? And he was just, he like gaslit him, basically it was, not gaslight, but he did. Uh, what's it called? Virtue, a little virtue signaling. Right. Okay. And um, I just kind of called him out on it during Michael's podcast and said to myself, <laughs> that's not really cool, Paul. Uh, why, who are you? <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to kill weeds. I'm sure you kill a lot of weeds on the golf course you manage. So don't be a dick. I don't know. That's just so he, you know, and rightfully because I was a dick, right? I, I mm -hmm. was a jerk. He blocked me, which is fine. I don't care. But maybe yeah. it was Paul Van Buren. He's in Virginia. I think he's at a, yeah. and a good superintendent, man. I mean, he does. Listen, he's been at that course for a long time, and uh, he's got mad respect in, on the turf Twitter world, and uh, he does a good job. But I just didn't like the way he responded to my friend Michael Stackwitz. I thought he was doing some virtual signaling, being kind of a dick. Yeah, I think in in the <laughs> short messaging format of uh, uh, of of Twitter, it's easy to lose uh, tone. Yeah, lose the tone, and and uh, people don't mean anything bad by it, but some people get offended, and it's just kind of weird. And that's the bad part of social media. They, you know, you a lot of people probably wouldn't say that to somebody's face, but then they right. get offended or. Or, or they respond in a way, and, you, and it's just like kind of weird, which is not like real human to human interaction. Um, so, right. anyway, I, I, I would encourage you now. to not uh, overreact like that and, and call people out on your podcast. Probably not. I know. I, I, I probably should. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe I, you deserve that block. <laughs> probably. I mean, I did. I hey, listen. I don't know Paul Van Buren. I'm sure he's a good enough fella, but you know, it, um. Yeah, whatever, man. He blocked me. I don't, it, yeah. Maybe he and Andrew had a great time at the President's Cup. Maybe we got the wrong person altogether, and it, it was some other Virginia. <laughs> we finally, we, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, it's right. Someone else entirely different. So Yeah. Well, um, so to go back to where that started, Andrew, uh, I think I told Andrew before he went to the President's Cup, I'm like, can you, uh, I'm really curious how often they top dress. Let me know. And Andrew checked and confirmed yeah they basically don't top dress um so yeah. i think that is um it, it's something that we can learn and and uh, i think it's interesting to learn from all around the world 
um, how different people manage and how they get results. And then we can find what techniques we can use at our facility to get the results that we need at our facility. And in fact, I wrote about how I've changed my mind and I'll put my QR code up one more time. And remember, I'll put a a direct link to this in the show notes, how you can sign up to get the ATC blog by email. Because if you were signed up to that, then you got an email yesterday, or it was this morning in the United States um, at, at the time that we're recording this. And that email was about 10 Uh, kind of a narrative of 10 specific things that have led me to change my mind about this top dressing frequency and change my mind about what's a normal nitrogen rate. Because I used to recommend about twice as much nitrogen as I do now for fine turf. And I used to recommend a lot of core removal and a lot of sand top dressing. And I've changed my mind now to a much more site-specific approach that tends to be geared towards less top dressing and less nitrogen. And I explained what that was. That was all on in that blog post. So you can keep... Uh, well, anyway, I've learned... And if you, if you read that, I learned about things that were from Australia, from Japan, from the United States, and from my own observations. And, and I think... By being able to, to learn from other people around the world, uh, I've certainly learned a lot. And, and uh, I know we all have the opportunity to learn uh, a lot. So that's a good thing about social media and a good thing about podcasts. And um, I know, you know, with my podcast, more than 50% of the viewer uh, of the listeners are from outside the United States. So um, it's, it's really incredible that I'm American, I'm, I'm in Thailand, but people from Sweden and Germany and England and Wales and Ireland and Scotland and New Zealand and Australia are listening to this. It's awesome. It's really good, Micah. I, I, I love when your blog comes into my email feed and, and uh, I've been enjoying the double cut and the office hours and I'm kind of bummed I didn't know about the Forsyth office hours. I would have loved to have watched it live. Uh, I just, you, you, I, you serious, what you seriously did not know that that was happening. Dude. So my life has just been really busy lately. I didn't know that it was happening. I, I've been, yeah, I didn't know. And wow. then I, yeah. Are you okay? So, uh, Oh, I'm yeah, totally you're just fine. You're busy in a good way, I hope. Oh, I'm busy in a great way. So, yeah, I got a lot going on. So I do the podcast. Work is ramped up. Stevie is soccer. He um, he just made the Philadelphia Union Academy team. Wow. Well, I've yeah, seen, which is, he just dominates. I see when you shared some video clips with me, like highlights of some of his goals, and the velocity and the accuracy that he gets on those is... Um, it's incredible. Thank you. I mean, he, but here's the thing. He's, he's talented, right? And he's gifted athletically. He's a gifted kid athletically and, uh, but he works at it as well. He, he's got all the intangibles, right? It's one thing to be gifted athletically, but just want to sit around and watch YouTube and play video games all day. That's just not his, he likes that. He likes hitting the Xbox. He likes watching Mr. Beast on YouTube. But mm-hmm. 
he also likes watching soccer tutorials and watching Messi clips and Maradona clips and he watches these clips on YouTube and then he goes out in the backyard and tries to emulate and try and learn these moves that Holland is doing that Mbappe he, he's just trying yeah. to emulate his heroes right and he Holland is at oh man I've seen some highlights of him man does he ever have a knack for scoring goals yes I, I would not yeah he's scary he's scary I don't know remember uh, Vladimir Guerrero the baseball player mm-hmm. played for the Expos, mm-hmm. and then he went to God. Where did he? Oh, the Angels, I think. Did he go to the Angels? Is that where he went? After I, I remember him as an Expo. Yeah. So, how scary was he in the batter's box when he stepped in the batter's box? I, I was afraid for whomever was pitching against him. And I, Holland is like that too. I feel like Holland is. I would not want to be in the you know in the box trying to defend Holland, man. That would suck. Yeah. So, so anyway, you're busy in a good way. So, yeah. So, I'm busy. so Stevie, yeah, Stevie just made the, so he starts next season, but he's going to, he's practicing with them one a week, once a week. And that, that training session is an hour away. So like, and it's at six thirty and eight. So yeah, dude, I'm like super bit. My dad is like also, you know, God, I'm, my dad has also been in a nursing home since uh, January and he's in hospice care right now. So I'm going to see him a lot. Right. Like, oh, yeah. and, but he's, you know, he's, that. oh, that's cool. You know, he's 85, man. He's had a great run. Uh, he's had a great life. He, and he's, they're taking really good care of him at the nursing home. And, you know, it, it's so like, yeah, I'm really busy. So long story short, I miss the foresight uh, office hours. I It slipped my my world of social media and or you whatever. I might not have been able to catch it live anyway. Yeah, I probably. But I hey, listen, I think I caught it the day that I released the uh, Zach Nicolutis podcast. I listened to that and I immediately turned on Forsyth afterwards and I had this great morning of uh, Turfgrass uh, knowledge acquirement from uh, the po- my podcast and your podcast, which has been cool. great. It's been that's awesome. All, that's awesome. Well, with everything we've talked about today, Joe, and I, I thank you so much for joining me to talk about the bombs. Unfortunately, I keep putting the bombs out there, so there's kind of an open invitation for you to come back and join the ATC double cut to talk about some of these and hopefully encourage some people to watch them, but, uh, or, or to read them, to have read a look them. at them yeah, again. Yeah. But, um, I w I would say that, uh, with all of the things that we've alluded to or mentioned today, I'm going to have to do a lot of work cause I haven't, I haven't been writing these all down. So I'm going to have to watch this or listen to it at high speed, note all the links that I'm supposed to put in and get those added into the show notes. And one of those links that I'll put in uh, right at the top will be a link to your podcast, The Talking Greenkeeper. Um, And maybe your Instagram page, your Twitter. You don't have a Facebook. I don't have a Facebook. I don't (laughs) have a uh, TikTok yet. Uh, And I have to, obviously, I have to uh, to edit my... uh, yeah your linkedin profile wasn't quite spelled right so yeah i messed up thanks for pointing out to me (laughs) (laughs) all right joe well thanks so much for joining me you're welcome micah 
I I always enjoy talking with you and I I will sign off now. Thanks everybody for listening and watching. I will sign off now for ATC from Yantikau, Thailand. I am Micah Woods. Thanks, Micah. Bye-bye.